I'm Taylor. I'm Kat. And welcome to Square Mile of Murder. Again, we're here. We're doing it. Yay! Yay! Uh, so, happy uh, middle bit of December to everyone. Uh, you've only got 10 days to go until Christmas, or just, you know, the day, December 25th, if you don't celebrate Christmas. Um, we're recording this, I think, at the very end of Hanukkah. It may have already ended, but uh, so happy post-Hanukkah, if you celebrate that. You know, New Year's coming. Everyone has to celebrate that one, whether they like it or not. I mean, do we really, after the last two years, uh, do we really have to choose another year? Yeah, that's true. That's fair. But yeah, so whether or not you celebrate Christmas is kind of irrelevant because today's case is not festive at all uh, and does not have anything to do with Christmas. It's just December. So yeah, like the, that's the rule of the universe. You have to say Christmas or like holidays as many times as possible in a day. So we're just getting in our quota. Yeah, because otherwise the Krampus will show up. Yeah. And I can't deal with that after the last couple of years. No, no. I can't deal with the Krampus situation. No. Uh, so this week, as you might have guessed, we're continuing our theme of spies and espionage with the story of a former Russian agent who defected to the UK before being poisoned and then solved his own murder as he lay dying in a London hospital. Mm -hmm. And if that does not get you excited, I'm sorry. I think you're in the wrong place. That, that description, yeah, that description's the best we could come up with. I mean, I... I'm fascinated by stories where people solve their own murder. I'm like, yeah, that, I mean, that's it's pretty cool. It's so sad, but also really fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but before 2006, few people in the UK knew the name Alexander Litvinenko. But in early November that year, he was suddenly on the front page of every newspaper in the country and plenty of others all across Europe, possibly even the world. It was this. Big news in America? Would have been 15. Yeah. Mm, I I feel like, yeah, like it was probably in the news, but I don't really remember it. But that's because I'm mm. old, not because. <laughs> <laughs> but I suppose like it didn't really have anything to do with America for once. Hey. Like the, the CIA weren't involved yeah. in this yeah. in any way. It was uh, Britain and Russia. Yeah. So, I could understand it not being, or not making as big a splash. I will say, like, the name Alexander Litvinenko, like, has a sort of, you know, very mild dinging bell in the back of my mind, but not with any sort of, like, before we started looking at this case, obviously, not with a lot, like, great context or anything, so. Yeah. So. The photo of a middle-aged man, bald and frail, laid in a hosp hospital bed with an ill-fitting medical gown around his shoulders, has become one of the most famous and instantly recognisable news images of the 21st century, at least in Europe. Yeah. As just discussed, possibly not outside of Europe. But So, who was Alexander Litvinenko? And what events led to the British public asking, 
what on earth is polonium-210? Because it was asked a lot that year, and the year after. <laughs> so Alexander Litvinenko was born in 1962 in the city of Voronezh in the Soviet Union, uh, which is presently located in southwestern Russia, close to the Ukrainian border. Uh, after finishing high school in 1980, Litvinenko joined the internal troops of the Ministry of Internal Affairs, uh, where he fulfilled a number of different roles throughout the 1980s. In 1986, he became an informant for the counterintelligence sector of the KGB, and two years later, he was transferred to the KGB's military counterintelligence, where he served until the breakup of the Soviet Union in 1991. That same year, he was promoted to the Federal Counterintelligence Service, where he specialized in counterterrorism. Uh, the Federal Counterintelligence Service was the successor to the KGB in Russia before it was reorganized into, into the Federal Security Service, or the FSB. He remained with the FSB until 1998. In uh, 1997, he was promoted again, this time to the FSB's Directorate of Analysis and Suppression of Criminal Groups. Sounds super fun. Mm. Uh, along with his work in the intelligence services, Litvinenko also saw military service during the Chechen War in the mid-1990s and was also responsible for the security of Russian oligarch Boris Berezovsky. Um, after an attempt on his life in 1994. Uh, now, Oligarch doesn't really do Berezovsky and his influence justice. He is referred to as once being the, quote, kingmaker of the newly formed Russian Federation following the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, so although he is often referred to as a spy in the British and other Western media outlets, and although he worked in counterintelligence and the security services, Alexander Letvinenko wasn't technically a spy uh, because he worked on operations relating to organized crime rather than international espionage. Yeah, I when I suggested this case, I didn't realize this because for the last 15 years... Everything about him has been about I'd spy. ever heard about him was yeah. spy. Right down to like a book I've just finished reading on conspiracy theories <laughs> has him down as a spy. <laughs> Whilst at the FSB, a very high-profile man was, as the BBC describes him, Alexander Litvinenko's quote ultimate boss. Now you might have heard of him, because he's a bloke called Vladimir Putin. If you've been living under a rock for the past few years and don't know why I'm being a smart ass, it's because Vladimir Putin is now the president of the Russian Federation and has been from the year 2000 to 2008 and then from 2012 to the present day, with Dmitry Medvedev serving a single four-year term in between. Yeah, he's a pretty big deal. Also, the term <laughs> ultimate boss just sounds like a bad reality show that would be on cbs it sounds like <laughs> undercover boss but like russian secret mm. service version <laughs> ultimate boss kgb yeah. version yeah. um it was during his time at the direct 
in the Directorate of Analysis and Suppression of Criminal Groups that Litvinenko came into conflict with Putin and other bosses at the FSB. Shortly after his promotion, Litvinenko reportedly discovered links between high-ranking members of law enforcement and organised crime groups in Russia. He reported his concerns to his superiors and even wrote a memorandum for the then-Russian president, Boris Yeltsin. But nothing seemed to happen to address this corruption. So Litvinenko came to the conclusion that the whole system was rotten at every level going so far as to accuse the intelligence agencies of running protection rackets to rival those being run by organised crime and corrupt law enforcement. Cool, 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 cool. (laughs) That's a hell of a claim to make about your bosses. Yeah, like, that's kind of, like, one of those things that you just kind of, you keep to yourself, I think, for a while. It's like, you said the quiet, you you said the quiet part out loud. Yeah, yeah, it's like, are you, do you, did you realize you just told everyone what you were thinking? Ah, <laughs> oh, shit. So, Vladimir Putin was promoted to the director of the F- FSB, the ultimate boss of the <laughs> FSB, in July 1998. I just love that the descri- he's described as ultimate, ultimate boss. boss and he's, it, it's, he's the director. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's his job title. Also, another association, ultimate, he's like the ultimate, like, baddie in the video game. He's the ultimate boss that you have to fight to win the game. (laughs) (laughs) So, reportedly, this promotion came with a little help from oligarch Boris Berezovsky. And he introduced Putin to Litvinenko. Berezovsky also told Litvinenko that it was thanks to his work that the government had been able to install a great guy like Putin as the agency's director. What a great guy. What? (laughs) The introduction did not go well, with Putin reportedly taking an instant dislike to Litvinenko, and was not impressed with his work uncovering corruption. Mainly because he was getting quite good at uncovering corruption. Yeah. That's uh that's that's a dan- that's the danger with with anti corruption. The danger is always that you'll find that, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just too good, too good, too <laughs> and too much corruption. Hmm. Uh, things only got worse as 1998 went on. Uh, Litvinenko was investigating organized criminal gangs from Uzbekistan, which is a former Soviet state, who were smuggling drugs into Russia. The gangs and the runners themselves were allegedly receiving protection from high-ranking officials in the FSB in exchange for a handsome payment, of course. Uh, But rather than follow up this investigation, Putin allegedly tried to stall any investigation, and Litvinenko was reprimanded for being overzealous. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. The Uzbek... Drug runners later turned on the FSB officials and double-crossed them, according to a Guardian article published just after Litvinenko defected to the UK. As well as being reprimanded for doing his job, Litvinenko also wrote in his asylum papers that during his investigation, people repeatedly called his wife and played the funeral march down the phone. That's fucked. That is really fucked up. 
That's not nice. Don't do that. So Litvinenko claimed that instead of furthering the investigations into organized crime and drugs coming into Russia from other Soviet republics, Putin was more interested in silencing his former friend Boris Berezovsky. Berezovsky had used his television network to help orchestrate Putin's rise to power, but the pair had fallen out and Putin allegedly used his position as director of the FSB to order Litvinenko's unit to assassinate Boris Berezovsky. And the reasoning was that Berezovsky had become rich at Russia's expense. Internal investigations were launched both into who ordered the alleged hit against Berezovsky and against Litvinenko. But again, this didn't really go anywhere. And we should say, everything is alleged in this case. Nothing has been proven any which way. Yeah. We want to keep all of our fingers and toes and not get Brain irradiated. Cells, lives. <laughs> yeah. Litvinenko tried to continue his various investigations and convince his bosses that the corruption he was finding was worth doing something about. But in November 1998, Boris Berezovsky published an open letter to Putin in national newspaper Commerçant, which Berezovsky actually owned at the time. In the letter, he accused senior officers at the Directorate of Analysis and Suppression of Criminal Groups of ordering his assassination. Four days later, uh, Litvinenko and four other officers from the Directorate of Analysis and Suppression of Criminal Groups held a press conference at an in at an independent news agency called Interfax. Now, I couldn't find the names of these other four officers or what happened to them after. Mm -hmm. Just that they just kind of appear as a note in Litvinenko's story, mm -hmm. so I don't know what happened to the, these officers afterwards. But at this press conference... They repeated the claims made by Berezovsky that the FSB had ordered his assassination. And they also said they had been ordered to assassinate FSB Colonel Mikhail Trepashkin, who just also happened to be at that press conference. Um, Trepashkin's career seems to have been similar to Litvinenko's at the time in that he was investigating agency corruption and involvement with criminal organisations and struggling to get his superiors to take his claims seriously. Uh, just days after the press conference, Putin personally dismissed Litvinenko and disbanded his unit at the Directorate of Analysis and Suppression of Criminal Groups, explaining that FSB agents should not be staging press conferences or making internal scandals public. <laughs> well... I mean, who'd have thought someone would say that? Yeah. Litvinenko believed that Putin had dismissed him not only to protect his own position, but also to put distance between himself and Berezovsky. Kind of a two birds, one stone situation. Yeah. Either way, Litvinenko had marked his card, and for almost two years, he found himself in and out of the notorious Lefortovo prison in northeast Moscow. Now, it's not the Lubyanka but Lefortovo prison has a dark history all of its own. After the Russian Revolution, the prison was used by the KGB and its various predecessors to house and torture and execute political prisoners and defectors, or would-be defectors. Yeah. After the fall of the Soviet Union, it was used by the Ministry of Internal, Affair, Internal Affairs and later the FSB. 
before being handed over to the Ministry of Justice in 2005. And it still maintains a reputation for torture and abuse, according to a Time article from 2019. Great. Mm. So, not that different to the Lubyanka. Yeah. Despite numerous arrests for corruption and similar charges and time spent in Lefortovo, Litvinenko was never actually convicted of anything. During one of his spells at the prison in 2000, he met and became friends with Alexander Goldfarb, a Russian-American scientist who was, at the time, conducting a study on tuberculosis in Russian prisons and trying to find a way to combat the spread of it throughout the country's prison system. The $15 million study was largely funded uh, by George Soros, who put up 13 of the $15 million. And Goldfarb worked for George Soros for, for, oh my god, for, 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 for. (sighs) (laughs) And Goldfarb worked for George Soros for most of the 1990s, although his association with Litvinenko would ultimately cost him his job with Soros. And everyone, everyone in conspiracy circles seems to love George Soros. He just does seem to show up. (laughs) Quite a lot. In October 2000, Litvinenko was released from prison and under orders not to leave Moscow. But the FSB were preparing to arrest him on another set of corruption charges, and this time he would be moved to a prison outside of Moscow. Deciding that life in Moscow was becoming too difficult, Litvinenko fled the city with his second wife, Marina, and their son. Now, we couldn't... Uh find out for certain but we believe that his first wife natalia and son and daughter from that marriage remained in russia the family traveled to turkey via ukraine and applied for asylum at the u.s embassy in ankara but they were denied litvinenko then contacted goldfarb for help and the scientist flew from moscow to turkey to help them goldfarb booked tickets for them Now, some say these tickets were to the Caribbean, Mm. others say they were back to Moscow. But their final destination is not important either way, because this flight had a transit stop at Heathrow Airport in London, where on November 1st, Litvinenko was able to request political asylum during this transit stop. Asylum was granted in May 2001, and the family remained in the UK. Uh, Settling into a new life in London, which, according to The Guardian, was funded in part by Boris Berezovsky, who had also left Russia in 2000, choosing to become what he described as a political emigrant rather than a political prisoner, after charges were filed against him relating to an embezzlement case at the airline Aeroflot. There are so many offshoots in this story. Yeah. I had to, like, work very hard to not go down the mall. (laughs) That is always hard. In the first couple of years in London, Litvinenko and his family had a fairly normal life, apart from every once in a while feeling like someone was following them. But his family back in Russia were less fortunate. According to another article by The Guardian, his mother, stepfather and brother were all interrogated by the FSB, which probably isn't unusual for the families of high-profile defectors to be questioned by intelligence agencies in any country. 
Or not even high profile. Just, just any. Any is probably not that unusual. Yeah. But Litvinenko also claimed his brother was beaten by agents and that his stepfather suffered a fatal stroke following his interrogation. Ugh. And therefore obviously blamed the FSB for causing this stroke. Yeah. In his first couple of years in the UK, Litvinenko continued to make accusations against the FSB and Putin, who by that time had been elected as president of Russia. He also authored two books. Now, I haven't read either of these books, so we're going to go off of the descriptions on Wikipedia. Lubyanka Criminal Group, also known as The Gang from Lubyanka, was published in 2002 and described the alleged transformation of the FSB into a criminal and terrorist organization. One of the book's claims is that Putin and other high-ranking FSB officers were involved in covering up drug trafficking from Afghanistan. Uh, so the Lubyanka is the building that houses the headquarters of the FSB and the KGB before it, and also housed the most infamous and feared prison of the Soviet Union, hence the name of the book, Lubyanka Criminal Group. Uh, the Russian government promised that a libel suit would be brought against Litvinenko, but that case never did materialize. The other book, also published in 2002, uh, mm -hmm. is called <laughs> Blowing Up Russia, Terror from Within, uh, also known as FSB Blows Russia Up. They're very on the nose, the, <laughs> these titles. Yeah. Um, and it was co-authored with Russian-American historian Yuri Felshtinsky. Uh, this book is about the Russian apartment bombings, which were a series of four bombings in Buinsk, Moscow, and Volgodonsk in September 1999, which, along with the invasion of Dagestan the previous month, was used to justify and trigger the Second Chechen War. Chechnya is a Russian republic, which is kind of like a U.S. state, in southwest Russia. It is part of the Caucasus region and shares an international border with the country of Georgia to the south and an internal border with the Russian Republic of Dagestan. Uh, the Second Chechen War is generally agreed upon as lasting from August 1999 to April 2009 and was fought between the Russian Federation and the Chechen Republic of Ishkeria. Although the major combat phase lasted from August 1999 to May 2000, uh, guerrilla war continued in Chechnya until 2009. Chechnya had seceded from Russia following the dissolution of the Soviet Union, which led to the first Chechen war between 1994 and 1996, and then gained de facto independence. So de facto independence in this case means that Chechnya's independence was recognized by Russia in practice, but not by mm. law. So by law it would be de jure, de juris, de jure, mm -hmm. um, independence. So Chechnya was legally still part of Russia. It wasn't recognized as a country by the UN or the EU or any other like body. big international yeah. body. Interesting. So, 
Yeah, Russia kind of gave them their independence and said, yeah, sort yourselves out. But when the new government failed to establish control of the republic, the region became chaotic and violence increased, with kidnapping and ransom becoming the main source of income in a new country with very little economic structure. Not what you want your main export to be. (laughs) Fucking kidnapping. Uh, So between 1996 and 1999, an estimated 1,300 people were kidnapped in Chechnya, including four British-based engineers who were taken hostage in 1998 and murdered two months later. Relations between Russia and Chechnya were never particularly good, but they deteriorated throughout 1998 and 1999 as terrorist attacks that were carried out throughout Russia were attributed to Chechen separatists. The Second Chechen War ended with Russia retaking control of the Republic, although unrest continued in the area to varying degrees until 2017, particularly in the south and the more rural areas of Chechnya. Yeah, I had heard, obviously I've heard of Chechnya and I've heard of the war in Chechnya, but I had no real idea what it was about. The war boosted Putin's popularity as the director of the FSB, and within months of war breaking out, he had been elected as president. So in the book Blowing Up Russia, Litvinenko and Felshtinsky alleged that the apartment bombings were actually false flag operations orchestrated by the FSB designed to justify the war and propel Putin to power. Claims which have been, I think, repeated by like in various international sort of mm-hmm. settings by various different countries, but they've or allegations, mm-hmm. I should say, have been made by various countries to this effect as well. But it's never mm-hmm. been proven. Uh, both books were banned in Russia, uh, making them the first books to be banned since Soviet times. In 2002, Litvinenko was tried and convicted of corruption in a Russian court in absentia and was sentenced to three and a half years in prison, which he obviously never served because he was, uh, he'd been granted asylum in Britain by mm-hmm. that point. Uh, following the publication of the two books, Litvinenko continued to make claims about Putin and the Russian secret and intelligence services including having a part in the 1999 Armenian parliament shooting, in which the Armenian prime minister was assassinated, having prior knowledge of the Belsen school siege, which was an armed siege in a school in Russia in 2004, as well as connections to Al-Qaeda, and supporting domestic and international terrorism alike. Great. He worked as a journalist, and began working for working as an informant for MI6 in 2003. Now, some have alleged that Litvinenko and his family's asylum and eventual British citizenship, which was granted in 2006, were conditional on him working for MI6, although MI6 have always denied this, as did Litvinenko before his death. But MI6 are not going to say, oh yeah, that's what we did. Yeah, probably not. He also worked as a consultant for various uh, government agencies across Europe, sharing his knowledge and expertise on Russian organized crime across the continent. Alexander Litvinenko was made aware of the many, many death threats against him since fleeing Russia. 
and was warned that the FSB had allegedly assigned a specialist unit to assassinate him, but he refused to live in fear, regularly traveling across Europe without security arrangements. He also reportedly socialized freely, or at least associated, with the Russian community in London. Uh, But still, his life continued without major incident until November 1st, 2006, exactly six years after he first arrived in the UK requesting asylum. He returned home from a meeting and began to feel ill, suffering an upset stomach and vomiting. Two days later, on November 3rd, he was admitted to his local hospital in North London. He told doctors he thought he had been poisoned, and the local Met Police were called in. But uh, as his condition deteriorated, the Met's counterterrorism division were called in. Now, according to a BBC article, Litvinenko began showing signs of radiation poisoning uh, because his hair also began to fall out. But a scan of his body with a Geiger counter showed no signs of radiation. After two weeks, Litvinenko was transferred under police escort to intensive care at the University College Hospital in central London. His immune system seemed to be being destroyed, but nobody could work out why. Uh, An early working theory was that he had been poisoned with thallium, which would have explained some of Litvinenko's symptoms, like hair loss, but further toxicology reports were inconsistent with thallium poisoning. At a loss as to what was causing Litvinenko's rapid deterioration, doctors decided to send blood and urine samples to a nuclear research site at Aldermaston in Berkshire. The research site used their expertise to try and detect radioactive poison and ran a number of tests looking for gamma rays, but the results came back negative except for a small spike barely above background levels. It was only by pure chance that another scientist overheard his colleagues talking about the readouts from this test and recognised that this small spike uh, was the gamma ray signal for for polonium-210. Now, this scientist had worked on early atomic bombs, of which polonium-210 was a vital component. (laughs) So, polonium-210 emits vast amounts of radiation, but it emits it it as an alpha radiation rather than a gamma radiation, which is why the Geiger tests in the hospital failed to pick it up, because... Geiger counters detect gamma rays, not alpha rays. So, the mystery of Litvinenko's illness was solved. It was polonium poisoning. But the bad news was that, according to Professor Ian Shipsey, who was part of the team that discovered the Higgs boson and is considered one of the world's most eminent particle physicists, polonium-210 is deadly and once ingested it destroys the body's cells. There is no antidote, no cure, but it can't penetrate your skin. It has to be ingested. Even paper works as a barrier against it. Interesting. It has to get into your system. has to be ingested somehow. Uh, The next question was, you know, when, where, and how? had Litvinenko ingested this poison. So from his hospital bed, as he lay there dying, 
Alexander Litvinenko helped police solve his own murder. Now, nobody has ever been convicted of Alexander Litvinenko's murder. So officially, these are theories and allegations, uh, but have never been proven in a criminal court, despite extensive police investigations and judicial inquiries in the UK. The meeting Litvinenko attended the day he fell ill had been with two former colleagues from the FSB, Andrei Lugvoy and Dmitry Kovtun, at a hotel in central London. They had arrived in London from Moscow on October 16th, 2006, and managed to smuggle polonium-210 with them through customs. Although, according to an article from The Guardian in 2016, police have not determined how exactly it was disguised. The same article goes on to claim that the pair had no idea what they were carrying and that their behavior was, quote, verging on suicidal. <laughs> because nobody in Moscow had explained to them that polonium-210 is a 100 billion times more lethal than hydrogen cyanide. Yeah, and uh, the alpha radiation left a nice trail all over the capital showing where they'd been. It's like one of those, you know, in the old cartoons of like the scent trail from the pie cooling on the window kind of thing. Yeah. It emits such a, like so much alpha radiation. They could even find which sink it had been oh flushed down. God. In, I can't remember if it was like a, a public toilet, like the sink in a public toilet or something. But yeah, there was just trails all over where they'd been for this meeting, door Fuck. handles, tea oh towels. Because your fairy liquid, you know, your, your ordinary dish soap doesn't wash it off a teapot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so the two men it's alleged, had no prior connection to Litvinenko and no personal grievance or vendetta against him. They were simply tasked by the FSB with assassinating him, uh, which is according to UK authorities. There is, of course, much speculation over whether or not President Putin had a hand in ordering Litvinenko's death or if it was a mission ordered independently by the FSB. The polonium itself was traced back to a nuclear power plant in the Urals. Alexander Litvinenko died aged 44 on November 23rd, 2006, 23 days after he was poisoned. His death has spawned a litany of conspiracy theories and severely damaged relations between Russia and the UK. Now, the Kremlin has always denied any Russian involvement in Litvinenko's death, but has also refused to extradite Andrei Lugovoy to the UK to face criminal charges for his death. Although extradition requests have never been put in for... Um, I've forgotten his name now. Uh, Dmitry Kovtun. Hmm. Interesting. Just for Andrei Lugovoy. Um, so I believe Russia doesn't, as a general rule, have an extradition treaty with any country mm -hmm. it is against their constitution yeah. to extradite although exceptions have been made mm -hmm. and they do expect other countries to extradite to them <laughs> but 
they themselves do not extradite their own people. Livinenko's widow, Marina, has continued to accuse Moscow of orchestrating her husband's death. She co-authored a book with Alexander Goldfarb called Death of a Dissident, The Poisoning of Alexander Livinenko and the Return of the KGB. Catchy title, uh, which was published in 2007. And along with Boris Berezovsky and British human rights lawyer Louise Christian, Goldfarb and Marina Litvinenko founded the Litvinenko Justice Foundation, which is a non-profit organisation dedicated to uncovering the truth about Alexander Litvinenko's death. An inquest was granted in October 2011, and after a lot of back and forth in Parliament about the potential damage to UK-Russian relations, uh, the hearing finally began in 2015, and a report was released in 2016, so ten years mm. later. The report concluded that Andrei Lugovoy and Dmitry Kovtun had killed Alexander Litvinenko with a strong probability that they were acting on behalf of the FSB. Various possible motives were outlined, but all linked back to a belief that Litvinenko had betrayed the FSB, was working for the UK and associating with high-profile opponents of President Putin and the FSB, as well as the history of personal antagonism between Putin and Litvinenko, which had culminated in Litvinenko calling Putin a paedophile shortly before his death. Ah. Yeah, that might make make him a little angry. Yeah, but just before that, he had also accused the, I can't remember if it's FSB or Russian government, of assassinating a uh, Russian journalist as well. Still, you know, any one of those things Which... <laughs> might get you in trouble. But apparently the, the paedophile comment was sort of a last, the last accusation on Litvinenko's side. Oh my god. Um, Russia has dismissed the findings of the inquiry as a joke and a whitewash, and continues to deny claims that either the government or secret services had anything to do with Alexander Litvinenko's death. This year, in 2021, the Independent reported that Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, claimed the UK government could be sued over comments made by the government in relation to the inquiry, claiming that Putin was, quote, likely to have approved the murder. Lavrov also claimed that the inquiry included serious allegations against the Russian government, but contained no evidence. And that is the very condensed version of the story of Alexander Litvinenko. Yeah. Ooh. Thoughts? I mean, seems pretty clear what happened to me. I mean, we can't say that, though. No. <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it's... What I find quite interesting is it's essentially a whistleblowing story mm -hmm. that has been framed as international espionage Yeah, by certainly the British media. I can't speak for uh, foreign media, but certainly by the British media has always been framed as this international espionage story. 
which is why I thought it was a spy story when I suggested it for Spy Month. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's actually more a story of whistleblowing. Yeah, and like then political assassination. Yeah. Yeah. Which, of course, all goes hand in hand with espionage, and there's so much overlap. Yes, definitely. Yeah. No, I think, like, yeah. Like, this is, unfortunately, what happens to a lot of whistleblowers in various yeah. situations and from various countries. Like, and I'm sure it's happened in the United States. Like, I'm sure someone wanted to do exactly this to Snowden. <laughs> or may yeah. still want to. Snowden, Assange. Yep. Oh, yeah. We, we've said it in a pre in previous episodes, I think actually in the Gareth Williams episode we might have talked about it, it is an open secret. Countries, governments, secret services, whatever, they will kill their own people in the interest of na national security. Yeah. But national security is a very vague, broad umbrella term. Yeah. And like, especially for... um a what do you even call them uh, a, a a group like the current like russian government and putin's sort of administration like the the concept of national security is entirely decided by a core group of people who mm. have their own agendas which is true. Oh, absolutely. Like, which is true to a certain extent in every country. Yeah. But in a place that basically has a dictatorship. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think Russia is now, def is it now defined as being authoritarian? Yeah, I think so. I can't remember if it's officially yeah. defined as that, but. But even if it's not official, it's pretty clear. <laughs> I mean, we just have to look at um, Alexei Navalny. Oh, yes. Similar situation. Yeah. Um, just that he went back to Russia. Yeah. I think that, like, if it was me and I had exposed the Russian government, got in, into basically a years-long shouting match with the most powerful man in Russia and then defected I might have tried to keep a lower profile just mm. I, like and I get it I get the like look I I have not done anything wrong here I am exposing wrongdoing and I'm going to live my yeah. life I really respect that yeah but like God like he knew he had a target on yeah. his back everywhere he went. I mean, there's... You have to have a hell of a set of balls to do yeah. that. Yeah. And I don't think it's... I don't think it's a lie to say most of us are not that brave. No. There's plenty of us would have... You know, because... But probably at some point the FSB were like, here's a big fat pension, go fuck off to Siberia. Yeah. Or the Russian Faris, or just the Urals, or just, just somewhere. Just go away. 
live a quiet life. You're not going to cause any trouble. And there's plenty of people. I'm not going to lie, myself included. If I was in that position, I'd be like, yeah, I'm going to take the money and run. Yeah. Most of us are not that brave. Yeah. Especially if... the, The claims he's made, which we must reiterate, are not proven. Any which way. Yes. But you know, about like orchestrating the Russian apartment bombings. That is like saying I shouldn't uh, yeah, I'm gonna say it. It's like it's like saying that the CIA uh orchestrated nine eleven just to justify the war in Iraq, which is a popular conspiracy theory. Yes, it is. But there's no proof. No. Either way. Yeah. Yeah, like saying that a government has perpetrated a false flag attack is a major fucking accusation. You know, if you you start making those claims publicly, there's a big target on you. Yeah, yeah. I think, I I, like, it would be interesting if... Things had played out differently if Putin wasn't the one who ultimately got all the power. Like, obviously, even at the time, Putin was a very powerful man in Russia in general. And, like, even before he was the president, even before it was Russia. So, Mm. like... I mean, he was quite high, if I remember right, he was quite high ranking in the KGB. Yeah. So, like, perhaps it was inevitable that he was going to be the guy, right? But, like, if if by some chance somebody else had a big rise to power and stayed there, like, I, I wonder if that would have changed things. I don't know. Shoulda, coulda, woulda. Yeah. <laughs> Because there was four years where Putin wasn't president. Yeah, and then and so, then he was again. You know, what would have happened if you know these this these various allegations continued until like two thousand and eight mm-hmm. when it was a four year period. Dmitry Medvedev, you know, if uh, Litvinenko was making had you know was still alive in two thousand and eight two thousand and nine and was making these allegations. Would Putin have had the power allegedly to to orchestrate something like that? Yeah, but but if so, Berezovsky allegedly helped orchestrate this rise to power for for Vladimir Putin. Mm-hmm. Even if it had been someone else, that system, according to Litvinenko, was rotten from top to bottom, inside, outside, upside down, whatever. Yeah, yeah. It was completely oh. rotten. Yeah. Somebody would have taken advantage of that. And if you corrupt your way to power, you need to stay in power. Otherwise, you have to face the consequences of corrupting your way to power. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And like and that's the allegedly. Thing. <laughs> yeah. And that's the thing. Like he was he wasn't just going after Putin. He was saying like, "Hey guys, look, 
this whole situation is all kinds of fucked up and mm. like it basically needs to be completely overhauled and that's a lot of people to piss off unfortunately this was a really bold thing to do for Letvinenko yeah. and i think actually it's impressive that he got out alive to begin with like yeah. out of russia and the fact that he did manage to go about his life for six years is pretty impressive. And and the fact that as he lay dying, he was like, I'm going to tell you how this happened. Like, that's mm. also very impressive. Yeah. Um, yeah. Equal parts inspirational and depressing as hell. Yes. Definitely. Um, so on that note. So on that note, we have a sale going on. Don't you start reading my lines. <laughs> yeah, thank you for listening to whatever that was. Uh, yeah, we have a sale on our merch right now up until Christmas Eve. So if you want to get some cool Square Mile merch, uh, head over to squaremileofmurder.store and you'd use code SPYMAS20, that is S-P-Y-M-A-S-2-0, SPYMAS20, for 20% off everything in our store. And be sure to get your merch before the new year, because the store is going away in January. But we'll tell you a bit more about that in the new year. The link is in our show notes or on our website, so... Check that out, get some last minute Christmas presents, treat yourself. <laughs> and if you like the show, please be sure to rate and review us on your podcast app of choice, especially Apple Podcast, because it helps us reach more people. And subscribe so you never miss a new episode. Yeah. Because why would you want to miss this? <laughs> you know? Um, if you'd like to help us cover the cost of making the show and help us invest in the square mile of murder future uh you can join our patreon page it's super fun over there tiers start at just one pound per month and every patron gets regular episodes a day early uh, you get a shout out on the show when you join get priority case requests and uh, a lifetime merch discount in whatever form the merch store takes um and that's all for just one pound per month as the tiers go up, you get even more, including bonus episodes and exclusive merch. It's all cool. You get a fun little community of like-minded weirdos. You get a direct line to us weirdos. So really, what more could you ask for? Uh, so you can check that out at patreon.com slash square mile of murder. And as always, links will be in the show notes and on our website and like everywhere else too. So thank you everyone for listening. We will be back next week with our last spy story. Yep. Just before Christmas. Uh, so we'll see you then. Yeah. Bye. Bye.